0: Visit plannedparenthood.org/future to learn more and support their cause.
1: Hi, we're Visible. We are the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great Wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right, 25 a month, every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just visible. Switch today at visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see visible.com.
2: Did I completely lose you? No, Jeff
3: just muted himself because he's really, he's got a, a, he's like sitting in a washing machine or something.
2: Okay. Um, Okay. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, joined today by Ezra Klein from one of our Friday coronavirus chats. I was struck in the sort of whirl of coronavirus news, immediate crisis stuff, uh, that there were reports out, there's a good article in the in the Upshot, about how health insurance premiums may be going up by as much as 40% next year uh, as a result of sort of coronavirus costs. I mean, this is not like the thing people need to worry about right now in, in this crisis, but uh, it's it's close to the weeds' heart. And it's a reminder, I think, in some ways that like we have an unresolved question as to like, what is the sustainability of the existing American healthcare system under a variety of stresses.
3: Yeah. So to talk a bit about this analysis, this came out of Covered California, which is the Obamacare marketplace. It's been set up in California and has been one of the more successful ones in the nation. And they were looking at this not just for California, but nationally. And so you can you can think about the mechanisms here as being pretty simple. You have coronavirus that takes people's expected healthcare costs because X percentage of the population is going to need hospital or ICU care who wouldn't otherwise have needed it. It'll be very expensive. That's going to jack up the amount of expected health costs. That is happening in a year that the insurers were not prepared for it. And so they're going to have to recoup that money next year. So according to the analysis, the one-year projected costs in the commercial market, so this is if you're buying private insurance on Obamacare, if you're in the individual market, the employer market, that kind of thing, uh, again, not just Obamacare insurance, the one-year projected costs there range from 34 billion to 251 billion for testing, treatment, and care specifically related to COVID-19. That's sort of two to 21 percent of premiums if they had been priced for. And then the expectation is that insurers will have to recoup that all at once the following year. So you simply double that, and that gets you up to potentially 40 percent in terms of premium increases. There's a secondary thing to this that is just worth noting about a lot of disruption in the healthcare sector. We are seeing massive, unbelievable unbelievable, unreal jobless claims. Um, we continue to see projections of as much as 20%, 30% unemployment, a lot of those people were going to have health insurance and lose it. Maybe they'll move over to Obamacare or something, but there's also going to be a lot of disruption within the health insurance market. So premiums going way up next year, people losing the health insurance that they had and moving to something else. It's a very bad situation if there's not some kind of backstop or other sort of more comprehensive reform deployed.
2: Right. And, you know, I mean, the job losses in in particular are going to be a very heavy strain on you know, people's ability to enroll on Medicaid systems. I mean, that's the, the one place where the federal government has done a little bit is they increase the federal matching payments to Medicaid as part of one of these rounds of stimulus bills. Uh, but at the same time, states who, you know, shoulder that burden are facing this sharply declining tax revenue environment. Um, and you already saw New York moving to cut its Medicaid program, even as there's a greatly increased need for it it because, you know, states just don't have the fiscal capacity to take this stuff on any more than the private insurance market has the capacity to take it on. And, you know, to me, I mean, in back of my mind as I watch this happening is the fact that, you know. We had this Democratic primary play out in which there was a heavy emphasis on what I think is a correct point, which is that the typical American was not looking for a massive disruption to their health insurance Arrangements that, you know, as much as highly ideological left wing people may think status quo insurance in America is terrible, most people profess satisfaction with their employer based insurance. But the problem we have now is that, you know, just because you don't have President Bernie Sanders uh, passing a Medicare for all bill, that doesn't mean people actually get to have the stable insurance that they thought they liked. Millions of people are going to lose their job and therefore lose their insurance. And the rest are going to have these premium hikes, which are going to really change things. I mean, employers routinely alter what the insurance package they offer is, right? If Cigna or whomever uh, comes to the HR department of a typical company and says, well, we're going to need 40% more money from you next year, uh, they don't just say like, hey, no problem. You know, I'll write you a check for tens of millions of dollars. What they start doing is... uh, you know, they start trying to cope, right? Can we make the benefits less generous? Can we push more costs onto workers? Things like that. Not because they're like assholes. Right? I mean Nobody can absorb a 40% increase in costs just like that. So you're going to see if those predictions come anywhere near true, right? A huge degradation in the quality of the insurance that the typical person has, as well as an increase in costs, plus a huge surge in the number of people who are uninsured. And that's sort of always been the latent problem with what people want from the insurance system, which is like for things to not change. But the policy status quo couldn't and didn't, and now we're going to see doesn't actually guarantee that kind of stability that people crave.
3: Yeah. So there are a bunch of different things here. And I want to make sure we have two directions in this conversation. One is to talk a bit about what needs to happen in the system right now just to stabilize it, right? Like in everything else we're dealing with, there's the economic rescue dimension of this, and it, it has to happen very quickly. Um, and there are very obvious things that we could be doing, and in particular the Trump administration needs to be doing, that they're not. And then I think we should have a conversation about what this does to the the, the bigger debate about healthcare Medicare for all, you know, can we sort of create a guaranteed healthcare system out of this? But I want to note... Um, one thing that the Trump administration has been asked to do by insurers, among others, is create a special enrollment period for Obamacare. So usually you can only enroll in the Affordable Care Act during one period of the year, absent um, various extenuating circumstances like losing your job. Right now, they're saying, just open it up. Let anybody enroll who needs to enroll so people have health insurance coverage There's a weird story behind this, because in a meeting with insurers, it was understood that Trump had made the commitment to do that. And then a couple days later, the administration said it wasn't doing that. It was exploring other unnamed options. So right now they could create uh, uh, an open door for health insurance, and they're not doing that. They are also continuing to double down on this lawsuit where they're trying to get the entirety of the Affordable Care Act declared unconstitutional. So just before we even get into the big reforms that need to happen or could happen, it is worth noting that the Trump administration's like direct immediate response is to both not use the system we have effectively and to continue trying to take apart the system we have even under this enormous uh, stress and crisis. Right.
2: Although, I mean, it, it is worth saying that at, at first I sort of misunderstood this story about the special enrollment, but loss of job always qualifies you for special enrollment. Correct, yes. Right. It's not quite as bad as I as I first thought. But yeah, I mean, the problem we've seen throughout Trump's administration with the Affordable Care Act framework is that the theory of it was that the system would run moving forward. And we keep seeing in a variety of ways, whether it's investing in the ads during the signup periods, what kind of waivers are given and when. Now, like it's a no brainer to declare a special enrollment period. But it's like the Trump administration doesn't want to operate the machine that they've inherited correctly because they don't believe it should be there, right? Like they don't want people to come away from this saying, oh, it's a really good thing that we We put this ACA framework in place X number of years ago because it helped a lot of people. They're trying to make it not work. And it's I mean, we've said so many times in the weeds, this is the most frustrating aspect of the Trump presidency is that he's such a political creature rather than an ideological one or a policy driven one. But he has so little interest in like digging into the idea that the, the surest route to him becoming Popular would be to just like try to do a better job on some of this stuff. But instead, you know, the administration behaves in this incredibly hard edged ideological way that we know has nothing to do with like Trump's personality. It's very much coming from the like bowels of the conservative movement in this almost crazy way. Like they're pursuing this lawsuit, right? And imagine if they win. And suddenly it's like, up oh, millions of people lose Medicaid just as they're flooding hospitals with infectious disease. Like, that would be a catastrophe. I mean, a substantive catastrophe, but also a political catastrophe. But nobody is minding the store in a, like a halfway responsible way. And it's it's like part of the, the multi-leveled sort of nature of the disaster that we're facing is that there's not any kind of like reasonable prudence about this, that especially if you want to stop... Further transformation of the healthcare system in a statist direction. Like you have to use the available tools to get people the help they need. And this seems to be happening on a lot of
3: levels in the Trump administration in a very extreme way right now. So this, this disconnect between the president himself and, and the people around him. In general, I mean, if you've been paying attention to the president's press conferences, you see wild oscillations in his attitude towards coronavirus from day to day. And depending on which day people tune in, they become more optimistic about response, less optimistic. But what appears to have happened around him, and it's connected to his own enmity for certain states that he's dealing with, like uh, the governor of New York or or, uh, Michigan, is – A conservative movement view that this is not the federal government's job and states and localities should have this power and it is their problem is like meeting with the president's view that he doesn't like some of these states and cities into a weird response where there is no serious coordinated national plan on coronavirus. Like you cannot go and download the White House plan for coronavirus anywhere. It's the most wild thing in the world. and that's in part because they don't have a plan. I was just talking to Senator Chris Murphy about this who thinks like you have who makes this argument that you have to stop attacking the white house for doing a bad job on coronavirus. They're just not doing any real job at all. Like they've just completely abdicated this and it appears to be a weird mixture between the president's distractibility and all over the placeness and sort of movement conservative federalism happening inside his White House. Um, but then you see this on, on things like healthcare too, where the president will go into a meeting with the insurers and say, yeah, don't worry about it, we'll, we'll get this done. And then it goes to the people at HHS, or I don't exactly know who scuttled this idea. But then these people who have been In the ranks and the trenches of the conservative movement for more than a decade trying to repeal obamacare they hear about this proposal to somehow expand obamacare and they don't want to do it and so there's just not just bad policy but also a lot of confusion in the policy happening in the white house right now in a way that is really dangerous and, and as you say is going to create secondary effects sort of next year like one thing that a lot of insurers and states want the government to do is create a special fund to pay for coronavirus claims not just on testing but on all kinds of different things um, that has not happened yet but if you did that it would make these premium increases not happen Now one could say and I think we're going to talk about this as we get into this episode well why should the bad luck of getting coronavirus be treated differently? Than the bad luck of getting cancer or heart disease or hit by a car or um, viral pneumonia of some other kind or whatever it might be, and 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 that raises some much bigger systemic questions. But right now, there's a lot the federal government could be doing to
2: stabilize just this
3: disaster, and they are doing almost none of it on the healthcare side, as far as we can tell.
2: Well, and, you know, in a macroeconomic sense, right, there is a clear distinction, right? Now you can say, like, well, why should you as an individual get financial help with your life-threatening coronavirus, but not with a million other things that can hit people? But from an economic stability standpoint, right, the difference is that, like, while cancer and heart disease are very expensive, they're also fairly constant from year to year, right? The, The insurance risk pooling mechanism functions in that respect to smooth the costs. And I mean, there are all kinds of problems with the status quo, but it was a kind of stable dysfunctional system. Coronavirus is this huge one-off surge in costs, right? And if the federal government could take that off the books at a time when it certainly has the financial resources to do that, that would avoid having ripple effects on people's health insurance situation in 2021 and 2022, when the coronavirus itself will presumably be be gone. I think it's completely true that that's not a theoretically consistent way of dealing with things. But all the time in emergencies, the government scrambles and does things that it wouldn't do in other circumstances. I mean, and, and I think progressives are sympathetic to this in some cases to say, well, there should be a temporary suspension of foreclosures and evictions, right? And you can say like, well, okay, why should you because your bad luck happened to correspond with coronavirus? Like, why do you get special housing assistance? And the answer is I don't know, like life, life is not always fully fair. It's just the scale of this damage is unusually large. So it warrants some unusual actions. And Trump is not a proactive policymaker. He said in Wednesday night's um, press conference at some point, like, don't worry, the treatments will be taken care of. And it was the kind of thing that left me scratching my head. It's like, does he think that that's true? Because it it isn't true under any, there's no existing policy framework by which the cost of coronavirus treatment will be taken care of. You could create one. You probably should, but he isn't. As far as I know, there are no discussions between the White House and the relevant congressional committees. He just kind of says it. I mean, it's better that he said it than if he said like, no, sorry, you're screwed, because that would close the door on a solution. But also it can be very misleading and confusing to people if they think a problem is taken care of when it actually isn't right. And we need to do things. I mean, it's nobody really wants to think about 2021 health insurance premiums right now. But it's important to think about it before it's it's too late.
3: There's another piece of this, which is I think we've been focusing on the side of this that progressives are normally more activated on, which is health insurance, expansion, coverage, protection, insulation. But there's a part of this that you might have imagined a conservative presidency being more capable uh, and, and that could have been helpful right now, which is deregulation of the supply chain. So we need a lot more doctors, a lot more nurses, and there are different ways to do that, but there's a lot of occupational licensing on both of those um, sides. A lot of things that, say, uh, physician's assistants or nurse practitioners can't do in different places. You could just have imagined a conservative uh, administration that was doing a lot more to use deregulatory approaches to, number one, increase the supply of healthcare providers, and then number two, speed along different kinds of treatments. So if you look at some of the reconstructions of what's gone wrong on, among other things, testing, it's very clear that the FDA, among others, was not relaxing its normal regulatory processes, was not actually trying to move faster. In fact, seems to have slowed things down in a really uh, problematic way that's going to lead to a lot of suffering. And I think things are probably changing on this now, but there and um, in in other parts of the Trump administration, if they're going to be ideological conservatives about this. There are at least some parts where ideological conservatism could be useful, but they don't seem to have been doing that either. We've not seen like an unbelievable profusion in in our drug testing and and treatment dimensions of trying to speed things through the regulatory process. Uh, Again, I think we're at the point where some of this is changing, but it has not been changing fast and definitely didn't change back when we needed it to change the most. So we could have moved on on both the testing and treatment sides of this earlier. There is a total lack of just running the government effectively here. And it expresses itself in some dimensions in not doing progressive things that the administration, at least in part, seems to believe that you might want to do or told insurers that they would do. It's in not doing conservative things that you needed to do a couple of months ago and and even need to be doing now. It's just in not doing very much at all. Donald Trump seems to be running this like he is excited about his daily reality show where he gets to go on television to talk about whatever he wants with the eyes of the nation on him and then brag about the ratings and say things that, as you know, aren't true. But It's really not clear anybody is running the federal government on this. I mean, in my reporting, I am hearing that, like, people have plans. They can't get their plans approved. Like, there's a real set of problems here because the like the thing is not being run well, like we have like Donald Trump doing The Apprentice, not actually being a business executive, you know,
2: even on the on the regulatory front. Right. Uh, So you've had New York and New Jersey, I believe, both took action to change their medical licensing rules to allow uh, more foreign born people with medical training in their home countries to qualify uh, to, to do treatments. That's a state issue where like the federal government technically can't lead. But again, you might expect a Republican president to in a moment like this say that was good. Like here are our federal best practices. Right. And it like has. I don't know, the HHS stamp of approval and also like three right wing economists at think tanks who are like, yes, there's too much regulation, right, to try to push. Because one thing that we know is happening is that the crisis hit the sort of big global cities first. And so that's New York, which which is huge and dense. But it's it's also New Orleans, which is not that big of a city, but where a lot of people came for Mardi Gras. Louisiana happens to have a Democratic governor, even though it's a very conservative State, And so you have a lot of red states where things are not that bad now and where consequently the reaction time seems slow. And a useful thing a Republican president could do, even on things that are state issues, is like prod them to do more if you're Missouri, you want to think now about how to improve your capacity to deal with a wave of cases. Now, you can hope it doesn't come, right? There's, there's nothing wrong with taking prudent steps and, and hoping for the best, but there's no guarantees at this point. It's, in fact, overwhelmingly likely that St. Louis and Kansas City hospitals will end up in the same situation as New York hospitals in a couple of weeks. And they're not using the advantage of time, and in part because the federal government is not sort of playing that that role. The one thing they did that I think was useful is um CMS changed the rules for Medicare reimbursements for telemedicine so that Medicaid beneficiaries, Medicare beneficiaries rather, could like see their doctors through through video conference calls and, and stuff. And, you know, they've been resisting that for years for some reason, but I, I think correctly decided the the balance of risks had shifted, but there's just not. Well, you said this, but like, there's not a lot going on. It's like Trump enjoys playing president on television, but almost to an exaggerated extent, right? I mean, even if the content of the briefings was better, just like normally you would expect a concise thing because he'd be busy. But like, he stands up there like, I don't have enough time in my day to watch those press conferences. I need to do my job. Isn't that wild? We've got a kid, like, got to keep the house clean. Like, I don't know. There's like a lot going on. So it's like, what's he doing? Why does he have hours every day for this?
3: Well, I think he's not doing a huge amount of <laughs> child care, house cleaning. But but yes, yeah, so the presidency is supposed to be a busy job. Um, Let's take a break and talk about the national healthcare reform implications of this.
0: Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. Visit PlannedParenthood.org slash future to learn more and support their cause.
2: The Democratic Party primary is still happening. And as with everything else these days, it, it focuses on coronavirus. And so we had uh, one, I think, sort of telling incident, both about like where the primary is and and where the future of, of the dialogue on this is happening. And Kamala Harris did a tweet about how we should make coronavirus treatments free for everybody. And I think she was expecting a lot of likes and RTs from progressive people because the government's stepping up to provide help for those in need. That's like I don't know, common sense, you know, kind of Democrat stuff. But Brianna Gray, who is Bernie Sanders's national press secretary, also a frequent Twitter presence, she did like a quote tweet dunk on Harris and said, like, well, why is it OK to die because you're poor if you get cancer? And Joe Biden was pushed on this in an interview on MSNBC to say, like, has this made you rethink your views about Medicare for all, anything like that? And he said, No. He remains opposed to that. He says single payer wouldn't help us at all in this situation. And he brought up in a slightly confused Joe biden way, he was saying that there's a lot of hospital systems that are under financial stress right now because of coronavirus. So the kinds of cuts in provider payments that are featured in these Medicare for all plans would be sort of worse than ever to pull off in the current time. What I just said is a lot more coherent than what biden actually said but i am reliably told that's what he meant and and i think it's true a lot of places preemptively canceled elective surgery which is a much more expansive concept of surgery than you might think it's not like just cosmetic stuff it's basically you're not in a critical emergency right now it's it's elective yeah a hip
3: replacement that you know you've needed for years
2: Right. So hospitals have delayed that because you're supposed to keep the system clear, so they're losing tons of revenue. I mean, this is not super duper relevant to the big picture question of single payer, but it, it was a reminder that the the cost savings in these Medicare for All plans have some real trade-offs involved and to an extent are only exacerbated by coronavirus. I
3: want to separate these two situations a bit. Um the the Breonna Joy Gray dunk on, on Harris, I think, is a very different situation than the Biden one. That, to me, is is an example of some of the Sanders campaign staff's really bad instincts on this stuff, because like that's good Twitter. But Kamala Harris is a co-sponsor of Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All bill. And her own healthcare plan that she brought out later, which is somewhat different than Bernie Sanders' bill, is also a completely universal healthcare plan. It just maintains a role for private insurance choice, but it completely decouples health insurance from employers, which is what you'd want to do in this scenario. So, like, that is clearly somebody who is an ally, but is also proposing short term emergency measures. And, like, you need to make them an ally and also do short term emergency measures. And I don't know why, given some of the problems the Sanders campaign has had, they're not sort of trying to win over some of these players they might need if they did ever get to a contested convention. Like if they got to a contested convention, they want Harris to vote for... In many cases, I agree with the point being made here. Like I agree with Brianna Gray's point, but like Harris is on the side of the angels on, on, on this one and you shouldn't be Trying to turn her off. Joe Biden is making a couple of points here. One is that, and he said this a couple of times now, that you are seeing very bad outbreaks of coronavirus in countries that have different kinds of national healthcare systems, also in countries that don't. Um, and so Single-payer would not stop coronavirus, which is true, but doesn't mean it would not be better to have a single-payer or just some kind of national health care system amidst coronavirus, right? We've seen really good responses in a number of Nordic countries um, that don't have single-payer. They have multi-payer, but nevertheless guaranteed national health care systems. Um, that's also how Japan works. Like, We could be doing a lot better if people didn't have to worry about any of this. Uh, and then the thing that worries me about Biden is that like there's a like it's the old Rahm Emanuel quote, you know, you never want to let a crisis go to waste. And then before that, the Milton Friedman had this quote that when there's a crisis, um, it's all about what ideas are just laying around. I'm paraphrasing from memory, but it's something along those lines. And I think that there is a sense which may be a correct sense um, that this is one of those issues that has the potential to completely upend the political calculus and system, not just in terms of public opinion, but if Republicans are running for office in 2020 amidst 25% unemployment and 200 or 250,000 deaths from coronavirus and all day every day the ads are showing Donald Trump saying that he gives himself a 10 out of 10 on response, but also takes no responsibility given that he said both of those different things. Like you could really see a route, right? This could be something like what you saw in 64 or in 32. I don't think it will be necessarily for reasons of polarization, whatever, but there's definitely a, a chance, right? Maybe a 20 or 30% chance mm-hmm. the Democrats come in not with um, 51 votes in the Senate, but 58 um, or just something sure. crazy happens, right? And they are huge majorities. And in that scenario, you want the president to be willing and, and have the ambition and the energy and the vision to To not let the crisis go to waste, to build something that uh, takes the ethos of solidarity we've seen over this year and the lessons we've seen over this year and builds it into an actual plan. And I have I have seen a lot of good stuff from Joe Biden on how to do direct emergency management right now. Like how to like who would you put in charge? Like how would you run the meetings? How would you support the economy? Like how would you create the task force? All of that. Like I think Joe Biden is performing well. But in terms of a vision up to the scale of the crisis, like a, like an aftermath vision, he's not. He can attack Bernie Sanders for. Bernie Sanders is now more than ever ism here, right? Like now more than ever, we need what Bernie Sanders has always said we need. I'm open to the idea that we need something different than that. But we do need something. And Biden, I think, is there's not been a lot of flexibility in his
2: message. Well, and it would have been a good opportunity to actually pitch Biden's public option plan in a more vigorous way, right? This is something that he put out at a time when his campaign wasn't getting a lot of attention. And then he kind of went like zero to 60 post South Carolina. So Biden's profile on health care is about what he isn't for. At the moment, but like he does have this plan, right? And like you could say, look, under the Biden public option plan, right, there would be this backstop that is available to everybody. So you wouldn't have all I mean, you could still have disruptions in life, but you would have a safety net that catches everybody who needs it without causing a like cataclysmic disruption for people who don't necessarily need it. Like that's the that's the affirmative case for the Biden healthcare vision. A legitimate question that a lot of people have about Biden on that healthcare topic is like, is this for real or not? I have seen Third Way uh, over the course of the primary very aggressively promote public option plans from Biden and Amy Klobuchar, and I remember like when the public option was in the mix. In 2009, 2010, they were they were not nearly so enthusiastic about these ideas. And, you know, so you wonder, it's like, look, are you getting behind a public option because you think a public option is a substantively and politically sound way to get us to universal health care? Or are you just reluctantly putting something up on your website because you want an answer to Bernie Sanders, right? And you can't know, right? I can't like read the minds of politicians, but all the stuff you were talking about about crises and going to waste, like that's a good moment, right? Because everybody does a little bit of no more than everism in a crisis. It's like you're pixeling out of your bag of tricks and you're like, "All right, this is this is what I'm going to pound the table with." And what Biden is really pounding the table with is being better at running meetings. You know, it's like it's not that he doesn't have policy ideas and stuff, but he's lucked into a situation where Ron Klain, who's been one of his closest advisors for years is also like the Democratic Party's leading pandemic response guy. And so it's like a perfect meeting of like man and moment to say, like, I would be really, really good at the blocking and tackling aspects of dealing with a pandemic, which is also what Donald Trump is terrible at. And like, that's all fine. But still, if you're talking about actually governing the country in 2021 and 2022, you are God popes not actually going to be dealing with an acute medical emergency what you're going to be dealing with is picking up the pieces of a broken economy and broken healthcare system and you haven't seen a candidate who is like passionate about that it's instead it's very focused on the management which like I wish we had that management now but I do wish that you saw more More about how how do we push the ball to reform, particularly because, as you say, it's like I've been assuming that the next Democratic president will be incredibly constrained by Congress. I think that's still probably true, but the odds of it not being true have have gone up from like 0.1 percent to 10 percent. Right. And like you ought to adjust your ambitions in response to that.
3: Yeah, there's a lot. (laughs) There's a lot in there. I mean, I've just been thinking about how strange it is that the entire political situation transformed itself, like, just weeks after the Democratic primary basically ended. Right. The Democratic primary didn't take place in this context. Right before we talked, I did an interview with Senator Elizabeth Warren, um, who you might uh, remember, ran in that Democratic primary, mm. and that'll be out on, on the Ezra Klein show on Monday. But. It was just striking to talk to her about some of these questions, because we were talking about this sort of what comes after, right? And she was, you know, talking about economic mobilization. And I had said, you know, sort of Green New Deal. And, and she said, yeah, but what we could also really use, and this will be closer to your heart, Matt, is a housing mobilization. We have this pre-existing housing crisis. It has made the coronavirus the coronavirus crisis much worse because you have all these unsheltered people who need to be held in hospitals till they're proven to be COVID negative, etc. We could put a huge number of people back to work and also alleviate one of like the core crises in America by doing a national mobilization to build housing. And like that, to me, was a good idea. Like I haven't heard <laughs> a lot of people saying that. Like I think we should do it. Um. It's just hard for me to know what primary voters would have done if the candidates had been running in the context of coronavirus. But what Joe Biden was picked to do was run against Donald Trump and to run against Donald Trump in this sort of generic Democrat way, sort of decency where Trump is indecent and experienced where Trump is, you know, lackadaisical. And now... They're all going to be running against the coronavirus crisis. I mean, they will be running against Donald Trump, too. But the nature of what electability means in this moment has actually changed quite profoundly. And so you're going to need to be able to put two things together. One is you're going to need to be able to inspire confidence in people that you can deal with the crisis we are dealing with right now, which to some degree Biden does. But also I think we're simultaneously seeing that even if he does that in the abstract, he's certainly having a lot of trouble breaking through in this media sphere. And I think one of the ways you might break through, but at, at any rate, one of the debates that is going to have to be had is also like, how do you rebuild? Not like, you can't go back to the Obama years now, right. right? I mean, if you ever could, this this debate between restoration and transformation is gone. We are being transformed, whether we like it or not. And the question is, how do you rebuild? And there are different views on that. Like you can freeze more or less of the economy in place. You can do a mobilization of different kinds. You could try to do a Green New Deal, a housing mobilization. You could try to pass universal health care. It could be social democracy. It could be the economy of the future. But you need some idea for like in the ruins of what you're going to inherit when you step into that building in January 2021, like what you're going to start doing to like Build in the place of what got destroyed.
2: Yeah, I I had this like half-reported story that was gonna be about Biden's restorationist vision had triumphed in the Democratic primary, but it was now gonna raise this thorny question of like Donald Trump could put forward in a very literal way the like, are you better off than you were four years ago question? And you clearly were. I mean, this is now not true, but at the time I was working- And only for some values of you. Right. But I mean, at the, at the time I was working on the piece that- But that, for the yeah, economy. I mean, that, that most people were seeing higher wages, you know, better returns in their retirement accounts, th- things like that. And it was going to be a tough pivot because you were going to have to say in some ways you were restoring things people liked about the Obama administration. Like they seemed like they knew what they were doing and didn't have like crazy scandals all the time. But not- Not like literally we're going to restore the conditions of 2016. Uh, Obviously, that's all completely moot now, but it's still true that the only political profile of Biden that I'm familiar with is of a restorationist. Concept. I don't want to say there's no Joe Biden vision for America, but there's no Joe Biden vision of transformation. His whole pitch was this idea that Trump was this detour on the road of like true American destiny and we were going to get back on the road. But now, regardless of what happens to Trump, right, it's like the virus has taken the whole world on this very different detour in which the nature of the relationship with China is different, the nature of the European Union is different, the nature of like what it means to have a cooperative uh, international environment is changed. There's going to be a shambles of the entire retail economy when this comes forward. Like, you can't just like turn the economy on and off I think, like a switch, right? Like something different is going to happen when we recover. And the next president is going to want to shape what that next economy looks like. I mean, you could do it in more or less forceful ways, but you want to do something. And it's not something I have begin to see them address. And in part, like, I don't know that it's the time to do it, but it also just hasn't been The nature of that campaign from the beginning to, like, think about being really original and having really bold colors.
3: And if I'm being honest, uh, like, I think one of the fears about Joe Biden is that. It's not that he he would pick good staff and and probably run a totally fine administration but that he's not going to move as quickly as he might have at another point like update as quickly like deal with a sort of changing situation as quickly and and I wonder for seeing that right now. But I do want to go back to the sort of core issue on 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 healthcare and a core values issue on healthcare. An issue with the Sanders campaign in general is that I often th- they often have the right point and then they kind of Marry it to like a needlessly antagonistic, my way or highway mm-hmm. approach to like who's on their side. But the point that number one, it would be better if healthcare had been guaranteed before this. And number two, like putting aside macroeconomic questions. Like, what really is the moral difference between being struck with coronavirus and being struck with cancer? That point is correct. Now, you like, they have a sort of way of handling this where it's like, then the only way you're allowed to respond to it is supporting Bernie Sanders' Medicare for all bill exactly as written. But in truth, Dozens of countries have all kinds of different healthcare systems that respond to this point, some of which include private insurance, some which include public insurance. Medicare itself, like in America, responds to this point. If you are a senior, like you have healthcare in this country, and a third of them get it through private insurance, right, through the Medicare Advantage program. Like you can do this in a lot of different ways, but you should do it. And To me, one of the great things about uh, about Bernie Sanders and one is something I would like to see from uh, Biden, but also just other Democrats in general, is like he sees what are some of the, the, the core value structures here and what coronavirus, I think, does demand us to see, does demand that we see is, number one, yes, we when it is happening at a big enough scale, we recognize that a lot of this just comes down to luck and people should not be left alone for their bad luck, like being laid off because of coronavirus and being laid off just because your boss did a shitty job managing your company are not that different morally. And the question of how much we should support people um, is similar. Or needing to take paid leave because you are sick from coronavirus versus needing to take paid leave because you're sick from the flu are not different. Um, And so there is a real need, I think, to take some of the values that for a blessed moment the Republican Party is accepting that it can see and using that to press arguments that have been going on for a very long time and that in many ways the Democratic Party is based upon that I think are in this particular case uh, very much correct. And so you could do that in a lot of different ways using a lot of different policies. But I do think it's genuinely important to do that. There is a lot of solidarity and sacrifice being asked on the part of of young people, of low-wage workers who are not themselves at extraordinary risk for coronavirus, but could be carriers of something that could decimate um, older, sicker populations. So we are asking them to participate in this like total economic stoppage. We are asking them to stay in and not see their friends, not see their families, like not live their lives in a normal way, and fine i think mo i think that is the right thing to do and it is the right thing to do to give it but then that solidarity and sense of sacrifice also to go the other way like there is a climate crisis coming that is going to be particularly bad for people who are younger and that's going to take some sacrifice and some solidarity on the part of older people who are not themselves as affected by it but maybe need to pay higher gas taxes or like you know accept a policy package that is not the one that they feel intuitively most comfortable with or similarly on healthcare like, this, it can't all just go one way. And to me, this is not political profiteering off of a crisis. This is seeing clearly what the crisis is saying, seeing what it is making us say, and then not pretending that the only time these are operative, moral, or policy concepts is in the middle of a pandemic.
2: And this, you know, I always feel was the lost opportunity of TARP and 2008, you know, was to say not that... Not that it was wrong for the government to step in with bailout money when it was needed to avert a financial crisis, but that that was a. That was a teachable moment about how the economy works, right? That it isn't a prosperous capitalist economy is not handed down to us from the clouds. It requires a government that steps in and helps when it's needed. And for that same reason, we should help individual people who suffer misfortunes here and there and up and down in in economic life. And now we have another chance to make this same Sorts of points about solidarity and the role of of the state in moments of extreme emergency, and the utility of applying that logic in our sort of daily lives. And yeah, I mean, I I, I think deploying that as just kind of like random dunks against senators who are in the top ten percent of progressiveness in the U.S. Congress is a is a weird way to do it. Um, but the sentiment is correct to try to push you know, our, moral thinking forward, especially from the standpoint of an opposition political party that, you know, can say a lot about day to day management, but has very limited ability to actually influence like what happens this spring and summer. But they can have a lot of influence on like, what are we thinking about? What are we talking about? And it was I mean, I think it was the correct instinct of the Sanders campaign to try to push the conversation in this direction. But I want to take another break and then pivot back to what I did think Biden's annoying response got.
1: Rate with service on the visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see visible.com.
2: So, one thing that we really, really, really see in this response, right? We are now being constantly flooded with information that is not about prices paid for healthcare treatments, but is about the availability of healthcare treatments. It's about everything from what is the actual number of hospital beds and ventilators to what treatments work and what don't, to do we have a vaccine or don't we? And what will a vaccine do when we develop it? And this to me is where I feel like the the left vision on healthcare always sort of falls down. That there's this like time slice view that like there is some healthcare out there and we ought to provide it to people on an equitable basis, which I I largely agree with, but then there's very little attention paid to like what the healthcare is, is like actually a moving target. And so I was looking up ICU beds per capita across different countries and South Korea, which we're all talking about South Korea all the time now, um, they have like a ton of. Uh, Compared to any Western country, which I think probably helped them out in this crisis. Uh, Then, if you look at the West, the United States has more ICU beds than Canada, than the UK, than France, um, but fewer than Germany, right? And separate from payment systems, right? If you are a Canadian who gets severe breathing distress because of coronavirus and cannot get on a ventilator because your country has an abnormally low number of ICU beds per capita, you are not going to feel very reassured by the fact that the inadequate treatment you receive is provided to you at zero cost. You would pay a lot of money to get in an ICU bed if your lungs were not functioning. Um, and, you know, both things matter. Like, nobody should be bankrupted by bad luck in the healthcare system. But it's also really important that people actually be able to get treatments, right? The the specter we have often is of a person who can't get a treatment they need because they don't have the money, which certainly happens and is awful. Uh, but even in egalitarian systems, you really see this in the UK. Like, if you don't have the system capacity to treat people, like, the fact that it's fair is sort of cold comfort.
3: Well, I think it goes even more directly to the political problem here than that. So if you look at polling, there is simply no attack that gets levied against single payer or any kind of healthcare expansion that is as effective as there will be waiting lines. Like if you tell people they will have, who are currently insured that they will have to wait longer for doctors, for surgeries, et cetera, like they turn against it in a second. And so being very attentive and having a real plan for healthcare supply is really important because particularly if what you're doing is you're saying we should immediately go to a fully universal, free at point of care system simultaneously slashing reimbursement rates at hospitals and for doctors by a considerable amount you're going to get waiting lines. I mean, you just will. Uh, that is how that is handled in Canada. It's how it's handled in the UK. Now, it doesn't need to happen, but it requires a large expansion of supply if it's not gonna happen. And you actually rarely see sort of very big ideas for supply expansion coming along with that, right? You could imagine national things to expand what um, nurse practitioners can do and how easily they can be licensed, et cetera. You could do very, very large expansions of primary care. This is always why there's a particular focus, and this is something Biden brought up in that uh, comment on what will happen to rural hospitals under a Medicare for all program because they tend to operate at lower margins and are often at at real risk of closing. Something that could be a real boon right now is a move to telemedicine finally Fulfilling the promise many people have thought it has had for a long time, but it's not quite fulfilled now. There's a lot of telemedicine happening, and that is going to create both like like new opportunities, but also a new comfort among people for using it. And you could imagine expanding a lot of healthcare supply that way. Some systems right now, you can email your doctor or like get on a little app right now and like have your doctor look at your mole like that. That's much easier on the healthcare system than going in. Some healthcare systems they don't let you email your doctor at all. Like that is still going on. We don't have electronic health records at work in a lot of systems, despite both the stimulus and Obamacare, trying to make that happen. Um, You can read all kinds of pieces on why that has been more or less a failure, but we do not have interoperable electronic medical record systems in this country. So managing supply is both important because it is important. Managing and making sure you're getting a lot of innovation is important because the point of healthcare is to buy you health and innovation and supply to uh, deploy that innovation is how you get that. But if you're going to get something like this passed too, you need a credible plan. So people don't think that the cost of expanding healthcare to everyone and making it cheap for everyone is that their family won't be able to get the healthcare they have. There's this endless argument between the left and and other people on this line of like, if you like your health care, you can keep it. And like the people who say that say like what they're saying is that the government is not going to take your health insurance away from you to give you something different that you may not want as much. Um, The people on the left make the point that you often can't, keep the health care you like because your employer could um could fire you and then you don't have your health insurance anymore. But another way in which like that bites is that if you move everybody over to Medicare for all and you tell them you can keep your doctor, but then their doctor is overloaded and can't see them, or you tell them they can get care where they like to get care, but all of a sudden it's hard to get in there or that hospital closed because its reimbursement rates weren't good enough or that physician practice closed because it couldn't survive on those reimbursement rates, you can't. So- In any kind of context here, whether you're keeping the system we have or moving to a different one, how you manage supply is really central. And it's something that I think Progressors in general uh, are a lot less comfortable talking about Not always, you'll sometimes see plans for like a national health core of this or that. But sometimes because like what you really need to do is a lot of deregulation. Like the medical supply system is way overregulated in terms of who can get into it. We could do a lot through immigration, but we could also just do a lot through like letting up on how few medical schools we have, et cetera. And there's just been the alliances there and the political economy of that has made the left, I think, a lot more comfortable on that ground. Meanwhile, the right just like doesn't care enough to push what are what could be some good solutions there.
2: Yeah. I mean, one of the most striking facts about American healthcare care that, that I've seen is that over the past two generations, the average MCAT score of doctors has gone way, way, way up. And the absolute number of male doctors has gone down uh, because essentially like Women have had the opportunity to get careers in medicine, which is great. But rather than that leading to an expansion in the number of doctors, it's just led to, like, the smartest woman college student applicants crowding out male doctors, which okay like maybe that's okay but also getting in to see a doctor is really difficult and expensive and like one reason costs have escalated so much is that literally like people who were considered like 1975 quality doctors are now not able to become doctors which it seems like a like a poor trade-off i mean obviously you'd rather be treated by like the smartest doctor or something rather than a mediocre one. But also, like, if you can't see a doctor, that's that's a very bad that's a very bad outcome. And while we do relatively well on ICU beds, uh, our number of doctors per capita in international comparisons is dismal. And, you know, in the coronavirus crisis, we really, really care a lot about ventilators. But like day to day, year to year, what most people need is to have ready access to a basic general practitioner who can and check them out, make sure they're doing okay, give them some advice about lifestyle changes that could improve their health, right? And it's just outrageously expensive to have like a basic medical appointment in the United States, and you can address that on the financing side, but unless you increase the quantity of doctors, there's a certain like balloon squeezing element where it's just going to be harder to get appointments uh, because this has to be said sometimes, but like there's not any unemployed doctors anywhere you can't like mobilize them with fiscal stimulus the way you can with construction workers or people in the retail sector and and things like that um, they 've all they 've all got jobs. all you can do is move them around and so even these ideas for like a rural health corps and stuff like that. Well, I think they have some merit, it's like unless you increase the quantity, it's not like we're oversupplied exactly with doctors in Chicago. Like it's still difficult and expensive to get a doctor's appointment there. So just shifting people into rural areas is not quite the right solution as much as as much as building it up. I mean, the other thing, though, where this becomes relevant is on the pharmaceutical angle, right, where once a drug exists, if it's incredibly expensive and necessary to keep people alive, it's intuitively like it's outrageous to be paying these sky high prices, particularly when foreign countries often don't. But then when something happens that we don't have a good medicine for, it's like now who is going to resent like the pharma company as their payday if they develop like a great COVID-19 pill? And so there's ideas like the smartest people on the left, like Dean Baker, have all these ideas about how to like actually reform medical research so it isn't so built around these patent windfalls. But you have to do something like that, right? Like you can't just complain about pharma pricing if you want there to be new prescription drugs.
3: And to be fair, it's something that he doesn't talk about anymore. But Sanders, for years, had a prizes not patents bill that was going to create an alternative pathway for certain medical research where you would get a very big like prize windfall at the end of it instead of a it's patent. It's driving me so crazy he created, that he's not
2: talking about this now.
3: I have I have covered this bill every time he introduced it for years in the Senate because I loved this bill. And yeah, it's weird that he doesn't bring it up. He And I think it's actually because it... It's a very awkward fit with a lot of his rhetoric, which is you were saying who's going to resent the pharmaceutical companies, their payday, but he will. I mean, he has been saying very clearly that like we cannot have like pharmaceutical companies and insurers I was getting rich off of this. And I don't want to see any price gouging. Like what I think we should have is like the government paying for the things people need in this case. But I do want the profit incentive working overtime here. Uh, I want everybody who can possibly do it thinking that if they have some breakthrough on how to do rapid testing or how to get to a vaccine quicker, like they are going to become millionaires or billionaires. And like that would be great. And like what I care about is that that is accessible to people. So I think there's actually been a tension here because this is a place where I think already you're seeing some, if you can get the market to work. In service of what you needed to be doing, that would be great. The problem is if you have a market that isn't working that well, and that even when it does work, people can't afford the outcome of it. But that's why stuff like prizes is really good. Like that's a good idea where the government basically creates a kind of structured market and somebody will make a bunch of money if they, if, if they get if they win um, or they create the the good we need, and then it'll come to people for a very low cost. So We need a lot of synthesis. I think this is like maybe the theme of the show. We need all the synthesis of ideas on different sides of the debate right now. And that requires like flexible, creative policy thinkers who are able to match, like, not just what they have always wanted to this moment. But what this moment needs and what is around to this moment, pick up ideas from a lot of different places and put them together into one narrative that makes sense. And Donald Trump really isn't doing it. In my view, Joe Biden isn't doing it. In my view, Bernie Sanders, although some of his long-term ideas, I think, have a real moral force now, I think he's not doing it. I think I said this in other podcasts here, but we feel to me like we need a level of leadership that none of the key players right now are ready to provide. And that maybe if this had been happening five months ago, we would have been looking for something different, but we have what we have. And like folks have got to step up or members of Congress have got to step up or somebody has got to step up because we need more than we're getting right now.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's it's very disappointing. I was thinking about the prizes specifically when I was reading an article about, you know, Abbott Labs has this new rapid test that is supposedly going to start coming out this week or, or next week. And people are very Excited about it, and they think they can run 50,000 tests a day or something. And there's all this discussion about, like, well, where should the testing machines go? Right. And I'm not technical enough to like quite write this plan, but it's like you should take a garbage truck full of $100 bills and like park it at Abbott Laboratories and then make them cough up like all the blueprints and things so that anybody can make one of these machines. Right. And we can go do it. And it's not like it's not like, ooh, like we can't let them profit. Right. It's like we can't let the means by which they profit be that That's there is right. limited supply of this very important technology. Like you have to just just pay them and then like let everybody go do it because we're going to have all these unemployed people. Um, And then all these people sitting around being like, where's the tests? And it's like, well, people need to make the tests, All, all kinds of stuff like this. Patents are fine, like some of the time. But historically, that is not how countries have incentivized like mission critical technological developments. But the United States has like backed itself into this incredible patent mania. And like Bernie has been on this case historically in some ways. But like, I I would be good to see him talk about it and like, put forward specific legislation, maybe narrow legislation related to Coronavirus, where you might get, you know, like a broader coalition of people interested, something like that. Yeah, I mean, it's just, uh, you know, these are dramatic times, and they could use a little more creativity. So everybody, everybody stay creative at home. Uh, Thanks. uh, Thanks, Ezra. Thanks, as always, to our producer, Jeffrey Geld. And Louise will be back on Tuesday.